Go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. We have been continuing to follow the Israelites and their redemption path as they've been redeemed out of Egypt with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand of the Lord. Uh, that they have begun their new life of freedom as subjects of the Lord. Yet we find that, that, as they have, that there's a wilderness between them and Canaan. And that they are but a community of people that the Lord is forming into a nation. And so here in Exodus 17, we have the last of three recorded trials that the Israelites experience in their journey first to Sinai, where we find that they fail at each point in trial, thus displaying the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant promises, where he's guiding this people who's um, quick to grumble and complain even potentially put to death the mediator that the Lord has set before them. And so the Lord displays his great love for his promises, his great love for his true people by displaying his faithfulness here to his covenant promises, first to Abraham and then to Israel as we get to Sinai. Follow along as I read for us. Again, I'll be reading for us the totality of our chapter this morning, Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? A little more and they will stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling or the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him, and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he had let his hands down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, 
<coughs> then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, and I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord is sworn. The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him once more in prayer. <coughs> oh Lord, what wonderful things are contained in your word and here in this Old Testament account of how you guided the Israelites. So Lord, will you guide us now as we seek to understand your word in light of Christ, who is the scope of all scripture that we may understand and give great joy and praise to you at what is found here. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, while God's miraculous provision of bread is still digesting in their stomachs, the people complain of their thirst. They do not understand that God has been guiding them to this place to show them their sin, as a loving father deals with a stubborn child. The people continue to romanticize their slavery and forget their destination. The Lord would try to show them their thirst for him should be greater than for water. Moses, under the direction of God, takes the staff and strikes a rock, bringing with him representatives of all the people to relay the message that the Lord will not forsake his people. And the people of Israel drank that day and were satisfied. But the thirst of their souls would remain. And many years later, during the Feast of Booths, where Israel was to celebrate God's gracious provision in the wilderness and the completion of the year's harvest, during a water-drawing ritual, he would reveal himself to be the true water from the rock, nourishing and overflowing the soul with life. And it reminded me and made me think of as we go through this and we'll see that in the war with uh, Amalek or uh, that we would see that within there we also find Christ in his mediatorial work as prophet, priest, and king. And it reminds me that as we see this cohesiveness between this these seemingly unconnected narratives of provision of water and victory in war reminded me of um, a quote from the 1953 movie Martin Luther. And it's while discussing Romans 1.17 with a Catholic uh, magistrate, the, Cat the Catholic magistrate asks, if you leave a Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? His answer is simple. Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. And so he, here we will see that though this conversation may never have 
taken place. It does capture something of what Luther was contending for in those nascent days of the Reformation. And we too must continue to contend for this in our hearts today. For some of us have come this morning and are in need of strength, spiritual strength, physical strength. Some of us are in need of wisdom. Some of us are in need of discernment. Some of us are tired. Some of us are weak. Some of us are struggling. The question this morning is, what will you rely on, Christian? Who will you look to in this time of need? And might we see that from Exodus 17, that the Christian only needs to look to Christ and see that He has given us His Spirit. And by His mediation, we will overcome. So we look at our passage this morning under two headings, the giving of the Spirit and the mediation of Christ. And so as we look at the first narrative account here of the water coming, proceeding from the rock, we see that this is a, uh, a type of the giving of the Spirit of God. And we need not tarry long in our narrative, but to make a few observations that we may interpret it in light of the divine author's interpretation and latter, our later, revelation. I think it would be helpful for us to look at those now and then come back to our passage. Turn with me to John chapter 7. Here, according to John's account, we have the Lord teaching at the Feast of Booths. And in John 7, 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was a special feast set aside in the nation of Israel where they would remember their wanderness journey, or their wilderness journey. They're wandering in the wilderness where they dwelt in tents. And so the Feast of Booths was to remind them that, they're, that, they're, uh, that they were to look to the Lord for all their provisions. And that also that they are pilgrims in this land. They are pilgrims in this world. And that those that were looking to the Messiah were ones that could never find a permanent, a true and permanent home here. But they looked to the greater country, that heavenly one that the Lord would provide. And so it's during this that the Lord enters into this series of teaching and conversations that he has with uh, the Jews. And it says in verse 35 that the Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go? For previously it said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So they asked, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me? 
And where I am, you cannot come. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So consider here the Lord saying that he that those uh, ought to come and find drink in him, and this drink is a, would flow living water, and this he spoke of the Spirit that was to be given. Turn now with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here the Apostle Paul who is a student of the Jewish scriptures and one in, as he describes as one taught by Christ he says in verse in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as an example for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And so here, the Paul, Apostle Paul, as we'll see, sets apart the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in type and anti-type. And so he, he sets the narrative of the Israelites in a position of, of instruction for the Christian. So that because of the arrival of Christ, we can come to our Old Testament scriptures under the direction of Christ as we read in John 7, and we can read in other places. And here by the Apostle Paul, we can see that there was a rock that provided flowing water, the rock being Christ, and the water being the Spirit. But let's first go back to 17. In Exodus 17, make a few observations as we proceed to understand it in this way. The first observation we should make is that it was the Lord that led them here. That he led them, he was still guiding them, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He was guiding them from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. You can imagine how the grumbling would begin. You can imagine there's uh, 600,000 men, not including women and children. So you have this massive amount of people, not including the needs of their livestock. But the amount of water that would need to provide for this people would have been great. And so they camp in a place where there is no water. But they're not there by chance. They're not there by their own leading. They're there by the hand of the Lord. 
They're there by the command of the Lord. They're there by following the Lord. And it should remind us that true, the true Israel, when He came on the scene, He was led also by the Spirit. He was led also by the command of the Lord. And He was led into a wilderness of His own. We read in the Gospels that the Lord was led into the wilderness and He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And so here, we don't know how long they camped here at Rephidim. But the people of Israel would quarrel with Moses. They would quarrel and they would ask Moses to give them something to drink. And they would actually say, is the Lord among us or not? When the Lord is tested in the wilderness, he answers Satan. By saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What we see lacking in Israel, we find fulfilled and present in true Israel. And so we may see for us that he knows, the Lord knows there was no water there. And yet he directed them to this very place. This is for us to remember that oftentimes we reach some particularly hard place when the streams of creature comfort are dried up. We blame ourselves, our friends, our brethren, or the devil perhaps. But the first thing to realize in every circumstance and situation where faith is tested is that the Lord himself has brought us there. And even more so as we find that here and they find a rock that is Christ and they out of it receive water, which is the Spirit, we ought to remember that our Savior was led into dry places and barren lands. And He, on our behalf, succeeded where we often fail and certainly where Israel failed. And so we are to look to Christ as the rock in our passage this morning as we are directed by Scripture to do so. Charles Spurgeon says, Everything that a man needs to quench his soul's thirst is available. To his conscience, the atonement brings peace. To his understanding, the gospel brings the richest instruction. To his heart, the person of Jesus is the noblest object of affection. To the whole man, the truth as it is in Jesus supplies the purest nourishment. Thirst is terrible, but Jesus can remove it. Even if the soul were utterly famished, Jesus can restore it. We may find ourselves in circumstances where we're experiencing some sort of lack. The answer is not to blame, though we may need wisdom. The answer is not to deflect, though we may need to be discerning about those we draw near to us. But the answer ultimately and above all is Christ our Lord who is the rock as we sung this morning he is the cleft of the rock that we hide ourselves in we also should understand as so our Lord was directed into barren lands as the Israelites 
are going through the wilderness on their way to Canaan. So for us, the fact is that the path of our life, the path of faith, is a path of trial. And those who are led by God must expect to encounter that which is displeasing to the flesh, and also a constant and real testing of faith itself. God's design is to wean us from everything down here, to bring us to the place where we have no reliance upon material and human resources, to cast us completely upon himself. Yet we experience how slow and painfully we are to learn this lesson. How miserably and how repeatedly we fail. And yet in that, uh, hopefully, we may see and be reminded this morning, and maybe we've experienced it ourselves, how long-suffering the Lord is with us. The Lord had led the Israelites to this place. It's very clear from our passage. But we also would see that as a second observation is, when was the rock struck? Did, did the Lord provide, did the Lord give answer to Moses? When did the Lord give answer to Moses? When did the Lord give answer to the Israelites? Did he wait for them to reconcile themselves to him? Did they wait for them to to show some act of great faith or some good work and goodwill toward each other or toward God? No. It was while they were grumbling. It was while they were in their minds or in their actions ready to put to death the one that the Lord had appointed to mediate for him. While the Israelites were grumbling against the Lord, while they were despising their situation, the Lord comes with his provision. And we may be reminded, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, that while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What we see here in type, in the provision of the rock, is that it comes to the Israelites, not when they dusted themselves off and prettied themselves up, but in their most despicable state. And they're asking, is the Lord among us or not? Here we should see ourselves in our fallen state, that it was not in our beauty that the Lord came and delivered us, but it was in our wretchedness that He did so. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in that way, we have our third observation, the mode of provision. The Lord could have brought water up from the ground. He could have brought it down out of the sky. He could have swept it in on the back of camels from some traveling caravan. 
He could have done any number of things to bring water to the Israelites. Yet he chose very specifically this mode of provision, which was a rock and Moses striking that rock for water to be provided. We need not really consider too long why he did this, for the Lord provided us the answer in John's Gospel and in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He did so to demonstrate something about the redemption he would provide in the Messiah. And so Moses is instructed to strike the rock with his staff. Moses is a representative of the law in, in the rest of Scripture, and the staff, as we can see, is an instrument of judgment if we just look at the Red Sea. And so we see that the mode of provision here in striking the rock is a prefiguring, is a shadow, is a type of the provision and the redemption provided in Christ through him being struck, through him being uh, injured, through him being, he receiving the penalty of our sin. A.W. Pink says, This, of course, speaks of the death of the Lord Jesus. It is striking to note the order of the typical teaching of Exodus 16 and 17, uh, typical, in other words, in type and shadows, in, in prefiguring of Exodus 16 and 17. In the former, we have that which speaks of the incarnation of Christ and in the bread that comes down from heaven. In this latter one, that which foreshadowed the crucifixion of Christ. And Exodus 17 is supplementary to chapter 16. Christ must descend from heaven to earth as the manna did if he was to become the bread of life to his people. But he must be smitten by divine judgment if he was to be the water of life to them. And it is by this the water comes and it is by this that the Spirit is poured out. And by this we make our final observation is what was provided, the provision itself. Yes, it was the rock, but... But what was the sustenance? It was the drink. It was the water itself. The Lord provides living water to the Israelites here. And so we, as we made observation, as our Lord made observation for us, and an interpretation for us in John 7, this water is the Holy Spirit. Augustine on the giving of the Spirit says, so that no one is bothered about it, as in speaking of John 7, where it says that, that the Spirit had not been given because Christ had not been glorified. He says, so that no one is bothered by it, how it is that the Spirit was not yet there in holy people, since we read in the Gospel about the Lord Himself, just after He was born, that Simeon recognized Him in the Holy Spirit, that the widow Anna, a prophetess, also recognized him. John too, who baptized him, also recognized him. Zachary had much to say when he filled with when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary herself received the Holy Spirit in order to conceive the Lord. So we have many earlier inklings of the Holy Spirit before the Lord was glorified in the resurrection of the flesh. 
So then what is the giving of the Spirit? Was there a withholding of the Spirit that the Lord didn't give the Spirit to His people? No, by no means. And Augustine is implying that none of these people could have done any of their seeing of the Lord, could none of their, any of their apprehending of who Christ was if it wasn't the work of the Spirit in their life. So the Spirit was provided before Christ's resurrection. So then what was this giving of the Spirit that Christ foretold about? Augustine says... He makes two distinctions to this giving of the Spirit. First, at the apostles' commissioning in John 20, where the Lord says He breathes on, after His resurrection, He breathes on His disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Again, Augustine observes that the breathing of Jesus is the antitype of the first breath given to Adam. So that no one is bothered about it. How is it that the Spirit was not yet there in holy people, as I've read before, that we see that it was given here in light of Christ's resurrection and first recognized as an antitype of the, of the new creation in Christ as to the first creation in Adam, so that there would be this breathing out of life breath or the life-giving breath as God did it in first creation so he does it in second creation the second place he draws the distinction is at Pentecost where the giving of the spirit signified that the gospel would go out to all nations by the speaking of tongues of the nations and this is being associated with the descending of the spirit so we see that this second uh, demonstration of the outpouring of the Spirit given here uh, when the disciples are gathered in that room together and the Spirit descending as flames, of, as tongues of flame, giving, we can say, the antitype to the Tower of Babel, where the Lord confused all nations, now He unifies all nations in his spirit by Christ's resurrection. Where, though, does this Lord's mercy stem from, both for the Israelites in Exodus 17 and for us as New Covenant believers? For he does not act so with the Egyptians. He does not withhold his judgment. The Egyptians are rebellious and they're uh, pagans, they're sinners, and he judges them. But here, the Israelites, in, up, in this place and in other places, they want to go back to Egypt. They're thinking about it, and they're asking, is the Lord among us? They're sinners, yet the Lord is gracious. Turn with me to Psalm 105, and we see on what basis here the Lord acts mercifully with Israel. Begins with this wonderful word of praise. We'll give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among his people. 
Verse 5, remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth, O seed of Abraham his servant, O sons of Jacob his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And then we find that he says that when he speaks, when he goes over the history here of Israel, it speaks of the plagues that come upon them. And then in verse 40 it says, They asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water flowed out of it. It ran in the dry places like a river, for he remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant. Here we see the Spirit making clear what was implicit in Exodus 17, that God acted upon his covenant faithfulness to Abraham's promise, that he made an oath to Abraham that Abraham's seed would become a nation and inhabit the land of his sojournings, in order that the Lord for a greater purpose, might bring about the offspring of Abraham that would be a blessing to all nations. So too we read of God promising to give eternal life to his elect before the world began in Titus 1. And this on the basis of the everlasting covenant as described or named in Hebrews 13. So we recognize that this giving of the Spirit is the provision, is the water, is the Spirit, and the Spirit is given and poured out. And what is the result of the pouring out of the Spirit? That all who are in Christ received the Holy Spirit. And this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 10, as we read before, that all and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Just as all the children of Israel, God's covenant people, drank of the water from the smitten rock, so in the antitype, all God's children are made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Gifts is a gift of the ascended Christ. And so we see this in back in Exodus 17, that the provision of this water from the rock is a type of Christ's and the Holy Spirit. His atoning work and the resulting gift of the Spirit. So that when we see it adjoined to this first conflict with Amalek, we can see the who, Christ, and the how now in their first conflict, which is the mediation or the mediatorial work of Christ. And so we make this another observation here in our next narrative that the possession of water was frequently a point of contention among the ancient peoples. It is evident that the spread of the news that a river of water was now gushing from the rock in Rephidim and caused the Amalekites to attempt to gain possession of it. And so they came up to fight with Israel. And as 
my great companion in Exodus notes, A.W. A. Pink, it's to be noted that the time when Amalek made his assault upon Israel, the Holy Spirit is calling our attention to the time when this occurred, that it was when Moses smote the rock and the waters were given. It was after the narrative of the water coming, proceeding from the rock, the picture, that great picture of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so, it's the, for the first time that Israel's called upon to do some fighting. We read in Exodus 17, or 13, excuse me, where God directs them around the Philistines. Fighting is not yet for you. They had done no fighting in the house of bondage. The Lord delivered them through the plagues. Nor had the Lord called upon them to fight the Egyptians at the Red Sea. But now that which typified the Holy Spirit had been given, their warfare commenced. Yet it was that which typified the Holy Spirit that caused the Amalekites to attack Israel. Wonderfully accurate is the type. It is not until the Christian has been made a partaker of the divine nature, as it says in 2 Peter, that the inward conflict begins. Previous to the new birth, he was dead in trespasses and sins, and therefore quite insensible to the claims of God's holiness. Until the Holy Spirit begins to shed abroad his light upon our wicked hearts, we do not realize the depths and power of the evil within us. We are given the Spirit. And as we are united to Christ and given the Spirit, we are enlivened and we mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, as Christ said. We mourn then now, or then our sin. We see its heinousness before a righteous and holy God. And it is at that point, by that same Spirit, that we then enter into the Christian fight to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to enliven the deeds of the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the old man and give life to the deeds of the new man. And yet this is not where the Lord sends us off on our own and out into the world. But He goes with us as our mediator, as we see the Lord is still present with the Israelites as they fought Amalek. The Amalekites and Amalek. As they fight him, we see this great picture of Christ's mediatorial work. For first, he sends Joshua, and we, and we can see that he sends Joshua intentionally because Joshua is going to lead them into Canaan. And so he's preparing Joshua as that great general, as that great warrior for God. To go and dispossess the inhabitants of Canaan, he begins here with Amalek. And Joshua goes and fights, but Moses is up on a hill. And he is told to raise his arms up with the staff in his hand. And as long as his arms are raised, the people of God prevail over Amalek. But as soon as his arms fall, the people fall to Amalek, or Amalek prevails. Oh, do we see the weakness of Moses' mediatorial work in the Old Covenant. We read it this morning in Hebrews. The law cannot make perfect. 
Moses says, the great prophet, subject to all the weaknesses of human flesh, failing to hold his arms up under his own strength, in need of the help of others. Yet we read also that Christ makes intercession for us always, for he always lives. Who was it that propped up Moses' arms? Was it not Aaron the great high or the Aaron the high priest, typifying the great high priest who would come not to offer sacrifices for his own sins again as we read, but to offer a once and for all sacrifice of himself. So we look to Christ's mediatorial work as prophet, priest, and finally as king. Joshua is that first representative of God as king over Israel. Joshua is fighting. He is the kingly protector over his people. And he leads them into battle. So our king protects us. So our king in our fight against our flesh is ever-present as prophet, priest, and king, and so ever-protects us. So that though we are assailed by many circumstances, though we are assailed by even many evil things, we are yet untouched, for our king protects us. So I ask again, Christian, are you in need of strength? Are you in need of wisdom? Are you tired? Are you tried? Are you weak? Are you struggling? May the words quoted before be of comfort now more than when we first began. Christ. You only need Jesus Christ. Christian, you only need to look to Christ and see that He has given us His Spirit. And by His mediation we will overcome. If I may, I'd like to read the end of Romans 8 for us in light of all this and then really an exclamation point to the effects and the joy that we have because of Christ's mediatorial work and the giving of the Spirit. I'm just going to begin in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we per with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. 
For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Is God for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? We're not asking like the Israelites, is the Lord among us? We're saying definitively, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will any of our circumstances, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in, these, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things that come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ our Lord. There you have it, Christian. Your circumstances still found in the love of Christ. You're still found in the loving embrace of your Savior who desires you to be conformed to his image because it is glorious. And he will complete the work that he has begun by his atoning death, giving of his spirit, and his mediatorial work. Let us pray. O Lord, what wonders we have found in your word this morning, contained there in type and shadow of that in that old covenant, in those wanderings, of the Israelites, you have been pleased to reveal Christ to us. The blessing of your spirit given to those united to him. And the wonders of your mediatorial work whereby we stand and overcome. Oh yet, Lord, we are assailed. We are weak. We are tried. We are often doubting, unfaithful. Help us to look to you in all our need and be refreshed. It's in Christ's name we pray.